So we're coming up on the 4th of July. About this time of year, some little podcast that I listen to will start telling stories about the Revolutionary War, and I start thinking about it a lot and getting excited. Uh, one of my favorite things uh, that I've gotten the chance to do is to walk the Freedom Trail in Boston and just stand in these wonderful places and, and think about all the, all the suffering people went through and all how they were willing to risk it all for what they believed in. And you know, what, what I find odd is that the 4th of July, the very beginning of what became the American Revolution, is a holiday, but that we don't have a holiday on the, on the 19th of October, which is when the surrender happened at Yorktown. And the end of the war seems to me something to be celebrated as well, and maybe we ought to try and get a grassroots thing going, yeah, or maybe not. But what happened on that morning of October 17? A drummer appeared uh, in the midst of the siege of Yorktown, coming out with a white flag, waving his handkerchief, and he had basically a message that said, we know we're beat, we know it's hopeless, we would like to talk terms of surrender. He was blindfolded, led uh, behind the French and American lines, and negotiations began. It took a couple of days, and the articles of capitulation were signed on October 19 of 1781. And the story goes, and I've recently learned that it may be apocryphal, but it may not be, that instead of doing the normal thing, which would be to play uh, some of the songs of the people who had conquered you uh, as you marched away, that as they marched away, they played a song called The World Turned Upside Down. Because Cornwallis could not believe that these upstart, nobody, hillbilly Americans not even real soldiers, most of them actually defeated his glorious British army. And so they played this song, the world turned upside down, kind of saying, you shouldn't have won, we don't know why, how, how did you win? And, and I was thinking as I read this text, in which these Christians are accused of turning the world upside down, I wonder if there's a connection, it turns out there is. The song is referencing this very text. And, and it's a very similar situation in which people with great power going back many, 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 many generations are upset and horrified and angry about this new upstart little group that's starting to turn things upside down. They don't understand how it's happening. They don't like how it's happening. And they're kind of raging against it. And before anyone sees me drawing some connection between the church and America, I'm not intending to do this. This is merely illustrative that when people find the way things have been pulled out from under them and everything kind of turned on its head, they don't like it. I'm a Baptist. I don't like things as simple as they change the kind of tops on the cups at the coffee shop by my house, right? But when everything begins to change, and not just a little bit, but turned upside I mean, think about that, that very, the very phrase, turned upside down. That's about as different as things can be, and it creates chaos. We were just uh, going through some of Calvin's old things, and we found a few of these globes, snow globes. You turn them upside down, and stuff starts flying all over the place. And I was thinking about this text in which the church is accused once again of turning the world upside down. It was meant as an insult or a charge or an accusation. And yet I think we as Christians ought to read it as not only a compliment to the Christians of that day, but a challenge to us as the church today. If you had your map in your Bible, uh, but the map will show you where the, they're going here, and, and they started in the Green Line, this is the second missionary journey, back in Antioch, which is kind of home base for these first couple missionary journeys. 
moving out. They went through Asia. They were not allowed by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia or into Bithynia. They went all the way to Troas. There they met up with uh, Luke. They had Timothy with them as well. They left Luke in Troas. They headed over the sea because God had sent them someone in a vision calling them over into Macedonia. So that they entered into Macedonia. They went to Philippi last week. They saw what went down there. It was crazy. They got arrested. They got thrown in jail. And the Holy Spirit caused an earthquake to shake the whole place. The doors opened up. And you remember they didn't escape. They stayed and instead converted the jailer and his family. In the morning, having been beaten and mistreated, they were invited to leave. You can walk out free men. Paul said, nah, I think that we're not going to do that. You can walk us out. You can bring us to the edge of the city. And everyone will see that we've been vindicated. We were in the right. We weren't guilty of being upstarts and revolutionaries and the same sort of thing they had accused Jesus of being. Left behind there in Philippi were both Luke and Timothy for a time. And Paul and Silas continued about 90 miles along the Ignatian Way, this major east-west Roman highway, until they got to the capital of Macedonia, which is called Thessalonica. Thank you, Dave, for not saying Thessalonica. I can always count on you in this kind of thing. So he's leaving one area of conflict and hostility to the gospel and to the church and persecution from the powers that be heading, we'll see, right into another area of the same sort of thing. If you read 1 Thessalonians 2, you're reminded that he, he, he didn't even know if he should go to Thessalonica after what he'd endured in Philippi, knowing it would be similar there, but he trusted God and continued on in faith. And, and having already suffered and been shamed, shamefully treated at Philippi, he writes, As you know, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I would have been tempted to just give up and say, All right, we gave it the old college try. Let's just say the second missionary journey was shorter and head back home. Not Paul. He pushes ahead with boldness and faith in the midst of much conflict. Now, Thessalonica was one of the wealthiest, one of the most influential cities in all of Macedonia. It was, it was kind of one of the places where you would move, you know, when you finished college for a while and think of yourself as all cosmopolitan and, and uh, you'd get a little uh, apartment and you'd call it a flat like you were European or something. Uh, but here in this area, Paul, coming from a big city and, and being gifted to connect with all different kinds of people, he attracts a large following of some very prominent citizens. We're told that three Sabbaths he went into the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews you might think he stayed two, three weeks from that description, but later on in 1 Thessalonians, it's clear that he stayed much longer. You probably remember our study of 1 Thessalonians from November of uh, 2005, probably fresh in your mind, but he stayed long enough to teach them many, many things. What seems to have happened is after three synagogue services, he was barred from the discussion of the interpretation portion of the synagogue. And so he turned from ministering there to ministering in other ways and to other people. This is more and more going to become Paul's standard operating procedure until eventually he says, I'm just not going to go to the synagogues at all. I'll go directly to uh, the Gentiles and Jews alike in other settings because he was just more and more being shut out. With Paul, though, he says, well, there might be much opposition 
is this door really shut or is this just the opposition for the open door? It takes a long time before Paul will say, I have a piece about actually saying, I'll go a different direction. Paul is tenacious in his preaching of the gospel. And the, the preaching, the reasoning, the explaining that he does in the course of the, the service there in the synagogues, it's not frilly rhetoric. It's not clever one-liners. We read in 2 Corinthians about how he gave these very basic, very simple truth claims. He said, this is what scriptures teach. This is what the case is. And he trusts the Holy Spirit to be working in a methodical case that he builds, pointing to the scriptures so that they will understand what he is teaching. And remember, Paul can't pull out this you know, vest pocket Old Testament and flip to the right passage. He doesn't have a Bible with him. He's got it in his mind and in his heart, having studied and, and, and turned to God and, and, and through every morning and every night meditating on what he has found in the scriptures, what he learned in rabbinical study. He now applies all of that to his understanding of Jesus and what he did for us. I saw a headline this past week in the Christian Post that there were several Christians in prison in China. And this is more and more the case. We, have, we are living during a time of intense persecution of Christians throughout the world. But several of them had memorized the Bible during their time in prison, saying they can't take away from us what we have locked away in our minds and in our hearts. Now, most of us not being in prison don't have time to do that. In fact, most of us, even if we had all the time in the world, wouldn't have the capacity, but God gave those people the ability to do it because they needed it. And yet, we're called to lock as much of the scriptures away inside of ourselves as we can to hide in our hearts God's word. If I came and yoinked away your Bible and you were left with just what you have memorized, how much scripture would you have? Well, Whatever you've put in your heart, whatever you've hidden away, put God's word in your heart and then the Holy Spirit will remind you of what you need to be reminded of in that given moment. But until you lock it away, it's not there for you to access. So Paul is speaking to, the, to these Jews in the synagogue, speaking their language because he speaks it fluently. In fact, he could probably teach a master's class on it. And he's doing here what he does everywhere. When you read Paul speaking to Jews or Paul speaking to Gentiles, they often seem very different, and they are. But if you back up one more level, he's actually doing the exact same thing with everyone. He's starting with what they have in common. In this case, it's that we all believe that God's word from Genesis all the way through Malachi, that's not how their Bible went, but the whole Old Testament is inspired, is true, is, is not up for debate, so let's start with that. And I will use that to, in the words here, reason, explain, and prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that Scripture says the Messiah must suffer and then be raised again from the dead. Next week, we're going to see he's in Mars Hill. He's with non-Jews. I mean, this is as Gentile as you get. Uh, Athenian philosophers who think of themselves as so sophisticated. And you know what Paul does there? He starts talking about some of their poets, some of their writings. The things that they have in common. Well, I understand that you believe in this and there's some truth to it. So we'll start there and from there I will bring you to this Jesus that you need to know about. Because unless you are told, you cannot believe. And unless you believe, you cannot be saved. And as he does this, more and more people are drawn to this message by the Holy Spirit. And they believe. He's explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is something, by the way, that despite everything from uh, Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross, to Isaiah 53, to Zechariah 12 and 13, I mean, the, there, there was this 
intentional blindness of, no, 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 we have an idea of Messiah we like better. Well, he was proving from the scriptures this must happen. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. That is a, a Greek turn of phrase that means an awful lot. The women who were uh, coming to Paul were of great influence. These are probably women who were giving an enormous amount of financial support to this synagogue. These were women in the city who then would, through their own influence, and women had great influence in Greco-Roman culture, they could promote the cause of the synagogue before the government, and now suddenly they've turned to follow Paul. This explains, I think, why the synagogue leadership became so jealous because the synagogue wasn't just a place they went on Saturday and they had a little service, a little part of their lives. It was the, the center of the heart of their whole society. And now, through his apostles, this Jesus is turning it upside down. And through the ministry of the apostles, we see that, that they're slowly a few people and not a few people at a time drawing away their base of support. Anyone would become jealous. Anyone would become defensive in the face of this. There was a song in the 80s by Michael W. Smith. If no one else remembers it, Jonathan does. It was called Secret Ambition. You used to do this. You got the tape. You put the tape in. You hit play. And you read the lyrics from the fold-out thing while the song is playing. And I remember the moment I was first reading the lyrics. And he has this little moment in the song from the point of view of the old men who have all the power. Old men watch from the outside, watching this Jesus leading their lambs astray. And I remember first thinking, that's messed up. Jesus isn't leading people astray. But from their point of view, he was. The apostles are leading their lambs astray. And so they react, maybe overreact, in a way that is very human and, and very natural for them. And notice, by the way, that this is the new pattern here for uh, persecution as Paul is moving into Europe. It's the Jews and the Gentiles together persecuting the church, which is to say the people. Those are the only two categories, right? There's not a third. There's Jews, there's Gentiles. And, and they're kind of joining together uh, in each city. The, the Jewish leadership maybe will go to the Gentiles or vice versa. And they'll come together and they will try to put a kibosh on the gospel because nobody is happy with their world being turned upside down. And so what happens is they look for Paul, they look for Silas. They can't find them. We're not sure why, but they can't. Maybe they were ministering to someone in their home. Who knows? So they go to the place where they'd been staying, the house of a guy named Jason, and they drag him before the magistrates. This is, this is a mob action. We're told they incited a mob and they stirred up the city. They stirred everyone up. And I think it's very appropriate the word dragged is here because that's become kind of a slang word for on Twitter when someone says something dumb and people just pile on them and just destroy them relentlessly and won't stop and, and, and they post the, the details of where they live and their phone number and everything and try and kind of just crumble their life around them. It's a horrible thing and it, and it gives us a little snapshot into how dark the hearts of humans can be but that's what it means now if you ask a young person what it means to get dragged. Well, this is, this is worse than that. Jason's whole life is about to be really taken away from him and it's all hanging in the balance. He's dragged off 
And, and this mob, which mobs will lose their mind, whether it's online today kind of thing like I was just talking about, or in real life, once there is a life to the mob, people kind of lose their inhibitions and their scruples. They lose the ability to look at the person who's being targeted as a person. It's a very dangerous thing. And Jason endures it. He doesn't flip, he doesn't fold, he doesn't renounce his faith. I know a few Jasons, but I don't think any of them are named after this guy. And they should be. This is, a, this is a real hero of the faith. This is a saint that we ought to look up to. He's unsung, but he supported Paul. He gave him a place to lay his head. He sponsored his ministry. He took the heat, and he paid the price. And then he said, get Paul out of here, because they're coming for him. And so Jason is a man that we can think about when, when we find ourselves suffering a bit. We go, how come I can't have the glory of serving God? How come I'm not you know, the, the next Billy Graham with adoring people waiting to shake my hand? And How come, how come I'm not seeing any of the, the perks of following God, but I'm seeing all of this downside? There are people who will lie about me, as Jesus said they would. There are people who turn against me, as Jesus said they would. Remember Jason. He is someone who is, his name is now emblazoned in the pages of Scripture forever to be remembered as a faithful man who, in the face of lies and anger and even threat of death, stayed true to the gospel. Just like last time, as the charges start flying, we see that they're very carefully crafted. Instead of, we don't like how you are threatening our position of authority, suddenly they get all pro-Caesar. They're very, very uh, principled Romans who have no king but Caesar. Even the Jews then joining together in this sense. And just like last time, there's enough truth in these charges being concocted so as to be suspicious, but not enough to convict. Yes, they are promoting another king and saying he's the highest king, the king of kings. Yes, they are, in effect, turning upside down the set of Roman values upon which they had been building their Rome because the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was built upon this leveling out of all worldviews into one mishmash of Greco-Roman idol worship. And yes, that's going to be turned upside down. There's nothing they can do to stop it, but boy, are they going to try. They try to play the doctrinal purity card, but really, we are told it's personal jealousy that prompts their actions. And so these pro-Caesar, anti-upstart people come in, in one voice, Jews and Greeks and all together saying, these are men who are trying to turn our world upside down. They're promoting anti-Roman ideas. We see several things here. First of all, that when the gospel comes in, re response to the gospel, opposition to the gospel often creates strange bedfellows. You can trace that all the way back to Pilate and Herod, who'd been enemies, suddenly becoming friends at the uh, condemnation of Jesus Christ. We also see here that when the gospel is presented, smoke screens are very common, maybe even universal. If the gospel is presented and someone doesn't accept it, they respond with, I've got these objections, I've got those objections. Usually what they're throwing your way is a smoke screen, and you've got to dig deeper. You don't want to get sidetracked by that first smoke. It's like when you're watching Law and Order, right? And really early, it's like an hour-long show, and in the first 10 minutes, they arrest a guy, and they're like, this guy did it. And you're going, no, he didn't do it. We have 50 minutes left in the show. 
And before long, you figure out, oh, the guy didn't do it. Yeah, well, that first smokescreen is usually, I don't want to talk about this. I am uncomfortable. That would turn my world upside down if I believed what you're telling me about Jesus. That, that first, that first uh, no, 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 those are ideas that are not proper for me as a Roman to engage with. That's not what was on their mind. What was really going on was deeper. And it had to do with them feeling defensive and threatened by this. And so the idea that it's turning the world upside down, turning the city upside down, perhaps is another example, like when Caiaphas, against his own intention and without his knowledge, actually prophesied truth, saying it's better for one man to die than for the entire nation to perish. Perhaps he's actually speaking, whoever uttered these words, prophetic truth that were wiser than he knew. These words of prophetic truth... They come from somewhere even beyond his understanding. The gospel will turn the world upside down. It still is today, where it is still being preached in an undiluted way. I mean, think about all the ways in which the gospel will take the world, take a life, take a society, and change it. And as the gospel moves across the world, it's, it's, yes, there are examples, sadly, of Christians who have owned slaves, but it's as Christianity spreads that, that we see slavery going away. It's as Christianity spreads that we see things like hospitals coming into being. It's as Christianity spreads like leaven going through from a tiny little pinch of dough through the entire lump that we see God's work and God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Turning things upside down. Softening hearts of stone. Breaking down walls of all kind. Revolutionizing lives. Taking people who hated everyone else and turning them into the most loving people you can imagine. And the scriptures are full of this story. And the, the annals of church history are full of these stories. And the church today is full of these stories. This is, of course, not meant as a compliment, but as I mentioned, I think it ought to be taken as one. They are disturbing the peace, in a sense, right? The Pax Romana, again, the peace of Rome was built on sinking sand. But who really is disturbing the peace here? Who's really guilty of these charges? Who's inciting a violent mob, setting the city in an uproar, etc., etc.? It's not Paul, it's not Silas, it's their opponents, and so when they couldn't find Paul and they couldn't find Silas and they couldn't make the charges stick with Jason, they allowed him to post bail. To us, that sounds like, all right, you pay like 500 bucks, they let you out. Later on, you get that money back. What it meant here was he was putting up his, his very life, everything he owned, saying, okay, the trouble will stop. This trouble you have with Paul, it's, it's going to go away. I will vouch for that. I will guarantee that. And then he turns to Paul and says, you better get out of here. They obviously still have their, their crosshairs on you, and now everything I own is up at the stake, and, and maybe even my very life is at stake. So after the whole Jason debacle, Paul moves on. He travels another 50 miles and goes to a town called Berea. Timothy rejoins him there in Berea as well. And, and you know, it's very interesting as we watch this you know, you look at this map, you think, okay, this band of guys all travel around together. That's not how it goes. If you had a map that showed every single person a different color, it would be a very complicated map with lots of zigzags going back and forth. In Philippi, Paul and, and Silas were singled out, while Luke and Timothy were able to fly under the radar and stay behind and strengthen the church and keep on ministering. Here, 
in Thessalonica, even Silas is not in the crosshairs. Only Paul. They've heard, they've heard about Paul. They hate Paul. They want Paul out of here. But Silas is able to stay. So, so Paul is bold, bolder perhaps than anyone in proclaiming the gospel. And the bolder he is, the more opposition comes. However, perhaps there is something to be said about others who are a little more restrained and a little bit more under the radar and a little bit less likely to, say, create a violent mob everywhere they go. Because if everyone had been just as bold as Paul and everyone got chased out of every city as they traveled around, who would help these churches grow? In fact, later when Paul wants to check on the church in Thessalonica, he doesn't go himself. He says to them, I tried to go, but Satan keeps hindering me. He sends Timothy because Timothy is able to go and come and go with no problem. Young Timothy rarely scares up angry crowds. Now, we don't want either extreme of I can't rock the boat. I I certainly don't want to say anything that will upset anyone because then I'll lose my influence. Then you become nothing. You're, You're an ardent supporter of the status quo. But you also don't want to be the kind of person who always, always, because of the way you bring the gospel, is met with absolute... I mean, think about guys on the internet. These guys who go out and stand on a soapbox and shout things that they know will be incendiary and and just tell people they're all going to hell and they're angry. And then when someone throws rocks at them or mocks them, they say, well, they mock Jesus too. They attack Jesus too. Trying Trying to incite hatred. Paul and Silas and his companions, they're all in the middle there. They're along the spectrum, but they're all in the middle saying we want to be effective without compromising the truth of the gospel. All of us ought to be in that same place with that same tension, but the way that God wired you will determine where in that spectrum you stand. And there is a need for and a place for both those who raise the ire of the culture and make people go, what, you're turning the world upside down? And those who kind of, under the surface, meet with people one-on-one and have relationships with people and slowly build trust and teach and lay foundations and follow up with ministry. So he goes on to Berea, and this is a very famous passage, and there are many churches called Berean Baptist Church because of it. And we're told that the people there in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they searched the scriptures to see if the things that Paul was teaching were true. Obviously, then, that's something that wasn't really happening in Thessalonica. Most of the people who heard the gospel didn't say, let me check into that. They said, I don't like that. You're going to turn the world upside down. Shut up. You're not allowed to come back here and talk anymore. That word noble is a very odd one, eugenes. It actually literally means well-born. In fact, it's where we get the word word eugenics. Well-born. Back then, it meant you were of one of the finest families in Rome. Like noblemen now. You think of the word noble. And yet Luke uses it in the sense of these people were more open to the gospel. They were more noble-minded. They were more open-minded. Christians are often called closed-minded people by those who would just scoff and laugh at the gospel without ever considering whether these things are so. It's a very ironic situation. Christians are often mocked as, oh, you, you're, you're so narrow-minded. We say, well, we walked the narrow path, but in order to accept this story of Jesus, you've got to be rather open-minded. You've got to explore whether this is true or false. But notice that these Bereans, although they are more open-minded to the gospel, still have a standard of absolute truth that they hold to. And that is the scriptures. They're searching the scriptures day by day. It doesn't mean that you're not open-minded if you believe in absolute truth. 
The, the world will tell you that, and, and it's almost become a truism in the culture today, but it's a lie. These men and women in Berea who were searching the scriptures were open to God's word. They were opening God's word, and they were learning, and they were confirming what they heard. Because the synagogue was not just a place where you gather together on Saturday and worship for a while. And it was a cultural center, but it was also kind of an intellectual center. People would study the scriptures together there. And it's interesting here, as these Berean Jews come together, reading through God's word, checking on all of Paul's references, checking the context, saying, is this possibly so? That when we, we read a modern Bible, you often come across the Jews did this, the Jews did that. And many throughout history have used those passages to become very anti-Semitic in their views on things. And a lot of newer translations are moving towards saying the Jewish leaders or the Jewish establishment or, or those who were in power at that place at that time. And, and the reason for that is because in a passage like this, it becomes clear. From the point of view of God's word, the truest of the Jews were the ones who said, let's check God's word. Those who were in the synagogue, the average guy on the street who followed God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Israel. We're not plotting. We're not forming mobs. We're not attacking. Rather, they were searching God's word. They were doing the grunt work. In Luke's view, this is the true faithful Jew, the same one that Jesus said would go along and love his neighbor, whether the neighbor was a fellow Jew or a Samaritan or what. So he's explaining, he's opening their minds, right? And they're open-minded. By the way, in Luke 24, 45, remember this? Then he opened the minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to open your mind. And suddenly all these little parts that were all kind of just drifting around like little pieces of a puzzle that wouldn't lock together are going to click together. And so in that one verse, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, having breathed on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, that word opened is the same word translated explaining in verse 3. When we explain God's word, when we open God's word, and we talk about God's word, and we look at the background, and we study it together, and we talk about it, we can open each other's minds to more and more truth. Again, this is a challenge to what the world's idea of open-minded looks like. And notice they didn't defer to scholars or scribes or guys with doctorates and say, you look into it, tell us if this is true or not. <laughs> not a bit. They did it themselves. They got down into the scriptures. They spent the time. They counted the cost. Luther said at one of his debates in 1519, a simple layman armed with the scriptures, is to be believed above a pope or a council without them. As for the pope's decree on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from the scriptures. If we are not rooted in the scriptures, then all of the religion we've got is worth nothing. This ought to be our position as well. This ought to be our default response to teaching, new teachings and old. To go back to the scriptures. I've heard in my time hundreds and hundreds of sermons kind of evaluated over meals at homes and restaurants. I've heard many people go, oh, well, you know, it was all right today. And then that was, I liked it. I didn't like it. It was funny. I can remember the outline. It was clear. I liked that guy's accent. It was too long. It wasn't long enough. I'm just kidding. I've never heard that one. But whatever people say, I rarely ever hear, wow, that really, really was biblical. 
and conform to what the scriptures teach. That is the rarest of criteria, and that ought to be how we as believers look into what is taught, especially in a world where some of the loudest Christian teaching is being broadcast from the world. You start, and I don't want to sound like a weirdo conspiracy theorist here, you know I'm not, but you start peeling back who owns the companies that are publishing the most popular bestsellers in the spirituality and Christianity department and you're finding that under another heading, they're over here putting out filthy movies. Under another heading, they're over here publishing, you know, the satanic Bible and all sorts of weird occult stuff. It's about money much of the time. And we as the church can't just say, okay, if you have the most resources and money, you get to set the doctrine for what we believe in America as Christians or across the Western world as Christians. No, we have to say, all right, we'll read this, sure, but then we'll read this and determine whether these things are so. That's what it means to be a Berean Christian. In a day where you can just plug into YouTube and type sermon on whatever and hear it, you got to be careful. you got to be careful. When you, you know, I sat under uh, three different men's preaching uh, and before I came into ministry myself, and all of them I had a long enough relationship with to say, okay, Unless something really sets off alarm bells, I don't need to double check with this guy because I have a relationship of trust. I know where they're coming from. I know they're in God's word. I know that they're led by the spirit. That's one thing. But when it's some random little clip over here or, or a little quote on Facebook or a sermon uh, coming through your earphones from who knows where, take the scriptures, search the scriptures and make sure that what is being taught is true. We need to return to this notion of Berean Christianity. And you know what? It's, it's odd that when we do that, we find that as we spread the gospel, there are Bereans waiting. There are Bereans waiting to hear it, to search the scriptures excitedly, to accept it, and not a few ready to come to faith. Ruth Orr, who is one of the greatest unsung heroes, not like, unlike Jason, of the last century, she died in 2014, but much of the work she did in the end of the 20th century was groundbreaking, world-shaking type stuff. And yet she wasn't overseas as a missionary living in a hut doing all this stuff. She actually lived in Tennessee. She worked for an outfit called World Bible School Correspondence Ministry. And she would create curricula for different groups to use. And she had created a Bible curriculum that went out to Ghana. And some people there who had gone through it wanted her to come and follow up with students. They asked her to come and make a trip to Ghana. She said, I'd be happy to. And they were so eager to learn about the Bible, to get deeper, and some of them who, who weren't quite so sure about it but were intrigued were so eager to learn more that people came, and when she arrived at the airport, there were people waiting for her. Four students standing there saying, are you Mrs. Orr? And, and, and here there were three of them, having come over 600 miles, and other students who then arrived had gotten in buses and vans and ridden for 10 or 12 hours to receive more teaching. In all, 43 students came and spent several days learning more about the scriptures, and 38 of them came to faith in Jesus. That is incredible. That is a Berean spirit. Now, what, what made the difference? Was it her brilliant teaching? Was it her flowery rhetoric? No, it was the Holy Spirit working through a woman who was, who was boldly teaching, clearly teaching what comports with these pages of Scripture. And that happened to be good soil, where the Holy Spirit had tilled the soil and prepared it 
for the spreading of the gospel, the sowing of the seed. But we need this within the church, this kind of noble-mindedness, searching the scriptures daily to make sure what is taught is true. Because we live in an age where, in the Western church anyway, feelings and fads and following the world with whatever secular crusade it's currently carrying out trumps God's word. We'll gladly explain away something in here if we can line up with what the world is teaching. That's going on all the time and everywhere, and we cannot fall into that trap. We need to be more noble, like those in Berea. I'm reminded of a comedy routine I heard not that long ago, where the comedian was talking about how easy it was to get away with murder before DNA. Like, apparently, if you weren't there holding the knife when they busted in, you, you, you got away with it. And he, and he had this little scenario. He said, yeah, back then you'd have a detective saying, hmm, I wonder what happened here. And a cop would come in and say, hey, detective, there's a, a pool of the killer's blood out in the hallway. To which the detective would say, gross, clean it up. Now, back to my hunch. In so many ways, this is how the church is starting to lean. We've got God's word right here. Gross, put it away. Back to my hunch, my gut. If we want to find some evidence, even in Scripture, to support what our gut wants to believe, we can find it. And if a detective who's going after trying to find the murderer wants to say, oh, it was that guy, you can find evidence to wrap around that. And at the end of the day, say, see, it's true, but to really study the evidence and find where it points is how justice is done. Otherwise, you wind up with an innocent person convicted. In the same way, to truly and humbly study the scriptures and make sure that what's being taught, even if it feels good and scratches my itch, is true, it goes against our natural inclination in the flesh. But that is how we grow in faith. Now, this whole passage seems to sort of juxtapose two very different things. In Thessalonica, we have the frothing mob charging these Christians with turning the world upside down. That's huge. That's loud. That's enormous. That's, that's exciting. And then in Berea, we have a bunch of people sitting in a room studying the scriptures. That seems a little boring, a little quiet. What if I told you those two things are the same thing? That the way the gospel turns the world upside down is not by inciting riots and getting people all amped up and and in a frenzy, but by pointing people to the scriptures and encouraging and saying, I'll study them with you and I'll have an open mind. If I find something that I said that's not true, I'll own up to it and together we'll grow to be more noble like those in Berea where we say "These, these words are the words of life. This is the truth. This is all we need in matters of faith and holiness and doctrine and trusting them. And saying, this is is the truth that I believe in. This is the absolute truth and I am open-minded. That that I'm wrong about something, that the, the teaching I've gravitated toward is wrong about something, that the approach I've taken to things. I want to grow closer to Jesus and I have a long way to go. I don't know about you, but I have a long way to go. We see these two things that seem so different, almost swirled together. We see both success and spectacular failure at the same time in proclaiming, proclaiming the gospel. Many people are believing, not a few prominent citizens, if not a few prominent women coming here, and then over here, not a few people in the crowd saying, burn them at the stake. Here we've got pitchforks and torches. 
Anytime you present the gospel, you'll get both responses. And if you're talking to just one person, you'll get one or the other. And if you are someone who's been very discouraged in your attempts to proclaim the truth to someone, to share your faith, and you said, oh, I don't think I've got what it takes because somebody responded really angrily to me. Several people acted like, oh, who cares even what you're saying? That's good for you, but not for me. I must be doing it wrong. This should be the reading every day, the book of Acts, to encourage you. Yet you've never had anybody stir up a mob and try and get you thrown in prison. Paul has. It doesn't stop him from sharing his faith. He says, well, I'll keep on going because there are those who are waiting to believe. There are those who are just waiting to hear the name of Jesus and hear the gospel, to hear about the blood shed for them. And when they hear it and they believe and repent, they are set free. The sort of teaching that goes unopposed, well, it would never be described in terms or cause people to respond with this sort of intensity. This world turned upside down. No, no. You you find the, the, the most popular of all spiritual gurus today and say, what in this will turn the world upside down? Well, it's mostly about how I can be happy and fulfilled and every day can feel like Friday and I'm excited to get up in the morning and take on that day. No one's, no one's stirring up a mob over that. No one's saying that turns the world upside down. It's safe. You think about Micaiah, that passage that Dave read. He, he was told, everybody is saying that we're going to win this war. Go to Ramoth Gilead, they said, and you will have victory. And so Micaiah says, all right, yeah, I'll go say the same thing. They can tell, it must have been in his tone, right? He's sarcastic. And they say, aren't you really going to tell me the truth? And so he begins to prophesy. You are going to go and there's going to be just chaos on the battlefield. Defeat. You will be destroyed. And what's funny to me is that they know it was a lie. He says there was a, a deceiving spirit from the Lord. It was a lie and they choose to believe the lie. That often will happen. And yet there are those who have yet to hear the truth. And that's what motivates us. And of course there's always that, that violent opposition. I mean look at Zedekiah. This guy he pulls out. He makes how long would this take to make horns of iron and then come out like some kind of WWF trash-talking wrestler guy? Like, with these horns, we're going to gore those Gentiles. He gets people worked up into a frenzy, but it's not true. When Micaiah brings the truth, it's not accepted. But the world, it still needs to be turned upside down. Turn on the news for two minutes and tell me this world does not need to be turned upside down. And tell me we do not need to find our values turned upside down, back to true north. The, the, the filth and the wickedness that's not trickling down into children's programming all over the place. We are in a bad place culturally. The answer is not for us to stir up our own violent mob and get angry and get our own pitchforks and threaten boycotts and things. The answer is for us to preach the gospel, which leavens the whole lump of dough. Let me ask you this. Are you, in your spiritual walk, striving to turn the world upside down? Whatever the cost, to bring the gospel to bear, to, to find the people who will search the scriptures with you, who will hear you, and who will, who will give it some thought, and, and to pray for the Spirit to move, because you know that the only thing with the power to fix what is wrong with this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be your mission. May that be our mission as Judson Baptist Church to turn the world upside down in the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this incredible story. 
in which two cities uh, very different responses to the gospel. And Lord, we know that there was opposition in both of them, and there were those who believed in both of them. And we pray that as we proclaim the gospel, you would remind us in your spirit of that, that there will always be opposition. There will always be those who laugh in our face if we talk about Jesus. There will always be those who are a little cleverer than us, who make some kind of a joke, and we don't know how to respond. Lord, may we just humbly thank you, like the apostles did, for the ability to, to be found worthy to suffer for your name. Lord, we pray that you would remind us again and again that salvation is not found in our being eloquent or incredibly articulate or clever, but rather in your spirit working through the preaching and the reading of your gospel, your word. And Lord, may we, like the Bereans, continue to search your word, to find your truth, and to proclaim it, because we know in those words is eternal life. In your holy name we pray. Amen.